Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp. Witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. This is Charlie flying solo with you today and dragging you kicking and screaming back into the 17th century. You know you love it, bit of early modern for you. I've got a wonderful guest with me today who I hope you're going to enjoy listening to as much as I'm going to enjoy speaking to. Dr. Benjamin Redding is Senior Research Associate in Maritime History at the School of History at the University of East Anglia. His book, The English and French Navies, 1500 to 1650, Expansion, Organisation and State Building, was published in January 2022. And his latest research has been into the career of the Gloucester and the events surrounding its recently discovered shipwreck. He's also the curator of The Last Voyage of the Gloucester, Norfolk's Royal Shipwreck, 1682, at Norwich Castle Museum. His new article on the Gloucester's early career in the Caribbean is available freely through open access in the Historical Journal, and he's here to talk to me about it today. Hello, Ben. Hi there. Pleasure to be here. Lovely to talk about the Gloucester again. <laughs> oh, I am. This is just the most exciting thing that has happened in recent years to me as a as a 17th century nerd. How has it been at Norwich Castle having everybody come and see the finds from this amazing shipwreck oh it's marvelous we've been working on the exhibition for around four years before the um before its opening and to now finally have it all out in the public it, it it's just truly in- incredible uh the exhibition restaged it into kind of two separate rooms where we tell both the 17th century history of the Gloucester including that important journey in May 1682 when it's lost with James Duke of York and Albany on board but we then also tell the 21st century story of the Gloucester in terms of it being discovered it being found again in 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 2007 by two local Norfolk divers Junior and Lincoln Barnwell um, and we were able to display some fantastic artifacts um, including textiles with his clothing, lots and lots of wine bottles, uh-huh. um, and it, we're just able to recreate this fantastic journey. So it's been such a pleasure. It's wonderful. It's just proved this fantastic window into the 17th century in the same way as I mean, the excitement is um, very similar to the Mary Rose. Do you think? Yeah, that's right. I think that's one of the wonderful things about the Gloucester because it is a warship and. 
for myself as a neighbor list or in that something to be really excited about of course but it's actually so much more about there that, than that um when we refer to shipwrecks in course including the mary rose they they use that term time capsules what they are and i think that's quite appropriate with the gloucester because it's it is a warship but it also offers all these different windows into other dimensions of the 17th century including musicians that were on board uh we we have an idea of both the the elite life of the nobles and aristocracy on the ship but also those who were the average sailor and seaman so it gives us that really lovely look into 17th century in a way that hasn't been possible before so there's so much potential with the Gloucester going forward. Incredible are there any plans for a a permanent exhibition at Norwich Castle or or anywhere locally because I know that probably by the time this episode is out the, the the exhibition is due to be over yeah, so the exhibition closes on the 10th of September, so it's, it's been open for six months now, so it's going to be quite sad for me, really, to see it go after all this time. Um, so a, a charitable trust has been established, the Gloucester City in 82 Trust. Um, it's chaired by Lord General Richard Dannett, and their aim is to preserve the heritage and the artefacts of the Gloucester going forward. They hope through fundraising to be able to establish a permanent home for the Gloucester, hopefully in Great Yarmouth, that's the, the aim, but um, so, of course, there's much to get excited about with that. I think there's a number of challenges in the way to, to, that, to that really being achieved. But I think we've got reason to be optimistic that that's possible. Excellent. Well, we can't wait. And uh, you must let us know any way that we can help. But we're going back to the Gloucester's early career before before she's wrecked. Um, we're back in the Commonwealth now. We're, we're pre-restoration um, and after Civil War. So the Navy grows significantly at this time doesn't it um tell us about how the navy in the king's absence and the first anglo-dutch war um because we know that charles ii will go on to fight parts two and three in that saga tell us what um what's going on around this time well, to understand the Navy as it starts developing under the Commonwealth period, I guess we need to take a kind of step back and look at what it was like before. Because really for the past 100 or so years, the the Navy, which really was just the king's own personal warships or, or queen, of course, and with Elizabeth and Mary, um, the, the, these these warships were just the monarch's own. And because of that, they were really expensive to run and they they were quite few in number. Uh, they usually averaged around about 30 to 40 at this time. Indeed, that's certainly what Charles I had yeah, as we kind of approach 1640. Um, so these are, this isn't a period of kind of big navies, big interestingly, when we get to 1649, of course, Charles I is executed in January 1649. Uh, that kind of begins to change. We, we get a difference where the Navy changes from being the monarch's Navy to being the state's Navy, to being the Commonwealth Navy, as it comes to be known. And one benefit from that, I guess, is that... Um, just, England just end, ended a kind of large, costly civil war, and it doesn't seem to have any real intention to kind of return to peace and harmony. Instead, it wants to come 
continue that kind of war machine that it's developed. And one way it does that is through the Navy. And it does start quite quickly after Charles is executed, expanding the fleet uh, to the extent that in the 1650s, some 200 warships are integrated into the Navy. Many of them are prized, of course, but many of them are also built. And so we go from having fleets of 30, maybe 40 state-owned warships to having fleets of over 100. Wow. So for that, the, the Commonwealth regime really does contribute quite a lot to the advancement of British sea power, as, as, as it will later <laughs> be known. Um, and of course, within that, the end of the end of the Civil War, it does lead to the First Anglo-Dutch War, which uh, starts in 1652. And that's really a war about trade, it's usually perceived as. Um, it, it comes as a result of uh, the navigation acts that have passed in the previous year. And the nav- navigation acts are an attempt by England to uh, ensure that it dominates makes its own trade and its own colonies uh it states that any trade being handled in english colonies should only be handled with english english ships so you can't go and have dutch dutch ships go off to let's say barbados then trade there uh, and then and then you use all these great goods and commodities for their own gain instead it has to be english ships that do that trading and that it starts to establish hostilities between England and the Dutch Republic, largely because the Dutch Republic believe in a free seas move, movement. It believes that no one owns the seas and it's just kind of completely open for everyone to use as its own wishes. Whereas England takes quite a different stance on that and uh, combined it does result in the first Anglo-Dutch war. Uh, and that's when the kind of the Gloucester comes into this um, and is, is, is built. Amazing. I mean, this is I, I just find this fascinating, this this very long standing tradition of England owning all of the sea around around England, around the British Isles. It's all ours. The channel is ours. All of that. This this kind of it, almost as if we planted a flag in it and the the Navigation Act being just the only purpose of that was to screw over the Dutch. <laughs> Absolutely, it, 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 it goes further than that as well. The, the famous saluting in the Channel, which, oh, yes. um, <laughs> if any, as you say, it, it is the English Channel, and therefore any any foreign ship passing through it that comes across an English vessel, it has to lower its flags in salute, or else it has the chance to be fired on. There <laughs> really is that concept of the the waters are ours, and um, it, it's also reflected. Charles the First did it; he built a ship called the Sovereign of the Seas. Which you know, its name says it all. Yeah. Um. There, there really was that perception. <laughs> um. So, what was the Western design that um your article is is all about the Western design? So, what what was it? What what did it do? Where did it go? Who led it? What's all this about? Well, that really continues the conversation we're having in respect to the the Commonwealth being a war machine and it always kind of wanting to look towards the next battle. It didn't want to see, it didn't seem to want to ever be at peace because I, I guess there's this concept of war makes money and it's, it, it's opportunistic. And um, ironically, the Gloucester is commissioned in December, 1652 to be built. So during that first Anglo-Dutch war, but, and it's launched in spring of 1654, but the that first Anglo-Dutch war that Gloucester's built for 
ends in April 1654. So it ends before the glossa can be used. And so <laughs> it, it, it opens a question. It was, oh, what do we do with these new warships we're building? Uh, what, what are their purpose? And so that's when the Western design kind of develops. Uh, what, what should we do with all these great new warships? And the decision is made that we need to probably look west. And that's, you know, the term Western design comes from. Uh, we finished war with the Dutch, but over in the West, Spain are doing very well at developing their own empire in the Americas. And so in summer and autumn of 1654, an English fleet starts developing around Portsmouth. Um, and that fleet, most individuals in it, aren't actually told the exact destination of where they're to go. It's kept very secretive because officially England aren't at war with Spain at the time. Although it's, <laughs> I think it's quite clear to many of the, the commanders and um, to those in Parliament that, that where the objective is to go. Um, so they don't know. And in fact, in December 1654, when this huge fleet, which includes 38 of the state's own warships, actually sails to the Americas, um, that those individuals on board, they're not told what they're doing there. They're just told they can see where they're sailing. They're going off to the Caribbean, but they don't really know exactly what they're doing. And when they arrive in in Barbados in in the at the end of January of 1655, uh, they still know the right and the rise of really what they're doing there. Ah, so there's but no clear just, mission. They're just there's, on the boat. Yeah, and I think that's why the term Western design really comes about. It's they know they're going west. They know they have this grand imperial design, but for most individuals, it's not clear exactly what they're doing, and that's probably to keep the Spanish. So it's kind of secrets leaking to the Spanish as well. And it's it's quite an interesting kind of case that happens that even when they they leave Barbados to start attacking Spanish colonies in in late March, most of the commanders even then don't actually know where they're going. And um, we've got this fantastic letter. The Gloucester's first captain is an individual called Benjamin Blake, who I'm sure we'll come back to later. And... Benjamin Blake's letter survives from the Admiral of the Fleet, uh, William Goodson. Sorry, not William Goodson, William Penn, his name is. And um, and Penn writes this letter, instructing all commanders to not open this letter unless they get lost and detached from the fleet. And this letter said, if you get lost, head to the island of Hispanola, which is today the Dominican Republic and Haiti, because that's where we're going to assault. So they're not actually allowed to know where they're going to assault until they get there, unless they get lost. So right to the end, it's really kept quite a secret as to what ha what's going to happen. Wow. But they, they do decide to attack uh, Hispanola, which is the largest island in the Caribbean. And well, it doesn't go very well for them, to say the least. <laughs> Gosh. Wow. OK. Um I definitely I want to ask about this, but you mentioned William Penn. Is he our friend William Penn who's going to go on? Is he Pennsylvania Penn? He is the father of that individual. Ah. Yes. So he, he, he is William Penn senior, I guess we could, we, we could say. <laughs> um, but he this William Penn is quite a significant figure in his own right. So as well as being the kind of admiral of this fleet, he he continues in the restoration as well. He's one of the leading kind of commanders of the fleets during the second Anglo-Dutch War as well. So and and in fact, he survives and becomes quite pally's perhaps the wrong word, but he becomes a close associate with James Duke of York, who was the um the Lord High Admiral after 1660. So he he is an important figure of this time. Amazing. 
gosh. Um, so come on then, what happens at Hispaniola? I'm guessing it doesn't go brilliantly. Yeah, nothing good really is the short answer to that. Um, <laughs> they're really well prepared. The, 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 that fleet of 38 warships actually extend, expands in, in Jamaica, in, sorry, not in Jamaica, that, that fleet of um, 38 warships expands in Barbados by incorporating lots of other kind of private vessels that are there, including some Dutch vessels that they essentially uh, kind of steal yeah. and it <laughs> sounds very typical of the period and so it's a large fleet and it must be mentioned that it's not just a fleet they've got a large army on board as well and the idea is that they're going to attack the island of hispanola in particular the city of santo domingo and attempt to incorporate that island into the developing commonwealth and commonwealth empire uh, but it just doesn't go to plan to say the least the, the, right from the start the idea is that they're going to split the fleet up into two divisions um, and half it is going to attack the eastern side of the city of santo domingo half it is going to attack the western side and the gloucester is part of the western contingent where it's going to attack and that contingent is led by uh, the vice admiral of the fleet an individual called william goodson who will come back to later and William Goodson also has the general of the army on board, someone called Robert Venables, who's uh, quite an important figure in this. And they decide they're going to land the army uh, at a river about kind of uh, slightly further west of the city um, called the River Hena. But when they arrive at the River Hena, Goodson suddenly decides that the, that the river cannot be used to land in the army there because uh, he claims there's a chain going across the river. He claims that the the, the, the weather is quite um, quite uneven and, and, and suitable for this departing in the fleet. And so instead, he continues sailing further west and they actually land at a point called Point Nizel, which is actually about 45 miles away from where they originally agreed to land. And that's where it all just starts going wrong, because it means that the whole army needs to march overland in territory there and aware of uh, uh, marching, say, 45 miles extra with very little kind of food and water available to them. And it means that by the time that this army had started getting near to the actual city itself, it was exhausted and hadn't got the food and water to survive. And in fact, the Spanish have been quite savvy here because even though they didn't have much of a defensive force, they knew that the English were coming. And so they they poisoned all the wells around the island with, by dropping kind of horses, corpses and so forth in them. So they, 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 had, they had no water available. And it just was, it meant that the army could not survive there. Um, so when there were minor skirmishes among the, with the Spanish, they, they were exhausted and they just weren't prepared to fight. And so it just ended disastrously for them. And by the end of of the of April, the decision had been made to ab abandon that assault in Hispanola and instead to assault the far less heavily defended island of Jamaica instead, which is successful. So going back to chains across rivers, they could they wouldn't sail in because there was a chain across the river. That's what he claimed, although Interestingly, once the army arrived back at that river, having marched all over land, they couldn't see a chain altogether. Uh, and so it is questioned whether that chain was even there. Um, Goodson doesn't, William Goodson, that vice admiral who makes that decision, uh, doesn't come across very well in this. And I think he has a target on his head thereafter.
goodness. I only ask because chains across river rivers are a very sore point to um, 17th century boaty nerds. And there's a big shout out to our friend Chris Sams at Chatham Dock. Uh- <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. If only with Medway and all. It's yeah. just, uh- Yes, quite right. Chains across <laughs> rivers never bothered the Dutch. Yeah. Um, so back <laughs> they to... They do the English, though, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we've obviously got... It's like sort of some sort of gentleman's agreement that, nope, they put a chain over it. We're not going that's over it. there. It's, no, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a towel on a sun lounger, isn't it? Nope, can't possibly yeah. take that. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so they failed. They failed spectacularly to take Hispaniola. So, of course, the logic goes... We'll go and take Jamaica. That must be easier. Um, Penn and Venables don't hang around for long after that, do they? Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. No, so as you say, Jamaica is really easily taken. As soon as they arrive there, the the very small kind of garrison the Spanish garrison that's on the island essentially flee and they're forced to very quickly negotiate with the English and surrender the island um, so great they've at least captured something on on, on this attempt going home empty handed yeah. I can't go home empty handed but it was very much seen as almost like a consolation prize in this they, they failed to to acquire that grand prize of Hispanola um, and, and, and at that time Jamaica it wasn't really being used by the Spanish very much and because of that the English didn't really perceive it as you know great 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 use at home either yeah. um, and so yes so um, Jamaica's captured and very quickly within a month, the decision is made that William Penn, the Admiral and Robert Venables, the General of the Army, both decide that they're going back home. That's it. They're they're finished. (laughs) Remember, of course, at Hispanoda, so many people have died of disease and exhaustion that the kind of English war ethic isn't going particularly well. It's not in a great state. So they return. And then although interestingly they're not invited to return by the parliament back at home and they they leave in at the end of june 1655 but interestingly the gloucester remains behind as well as a small squadron um and including that vice admiral william goodson he becomes admiral of the fleet that remain in the caribbean so he the, the individual who made that mistake at hispanola is still promoted essentially, and he becomes the leader of those that remain, including of of um of with including the the overall commander of the Gloucester, um with Benjamin Blake of course still serving as its captain. Uh, 
William Penn and Robert Venables head home, they do not uh, get a good reception. You know, it, this isn't great parties you succeed in this. In fact, as soon as they return home, both of them are locked in the Tower of London. Oh, no. They're, they're, they're not, because they haven't been invited to return home, Cromwell and his associates perceive them as essentially abandoning their posts and they shouldn't have done this. And so he locks them up. And um, William Penn does go on to kind of, after he's freed from the Tower, he does um, carry, carry on in the Admiralty, especially in, in, under Charles II. But Robert Venables, really, that's the end for him. He's he, he's not favoured again thereafter. So um, maybe it's because they clearly had failed at Hispanola and it was a shock for that reason. And that's why they're, they're locked up. But the argument at the time was that they were locked up for essentially disobeying orders. They shouldn't have returned home. And they're the top guys, aren't they? They're I mean, the top guys. The buck stops they're the top with guys them. And they, they leave it to their, their, those lower down the ladder to carry on the Caribbean in, 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 instead. So it could be come across as somewhat cowardly. They're definitely very cowardly. So I'm guessing they've, they've come home on a smaller boat or got an easy jet flight, um, <laughs> but they've left the Gloucester there. So what, what does the Gloucester do after the capture of Jamaica? Well, they then develops a quite a argument of what to do with the ships that remain there. Uh, of course, Jamaica has been captured. So is the kind of main goal of the fleet to actually defend Jamaica and ensure the Spanish don't capture it again? Or, it actually should the fleet carry on and continue attacking other Spanish colonies and continue to keep expanding the Commonwealth. Uh, the problem is they're not actually given clear orders on that. Um, and, and, and so it is left really rather open and it results in arguments unfolding between the Gloucester's Captain Benjamin Blake and William Goodson, the, the Admiral of the fleet over that. Uh, interestingly for the Gloucester, uh, just as William Goodson's promoted to become Admiral of the fleet, Benjamin Blake is appointed to become his second in command. He's appointed vice admiral. So the Gloucester's captain is vice admiral with the Caribbean fleet that remains. And the decision is made that um, after attempting to restore order in the fleet, there's several court martials that, uh, that, that take place to resolve disorder there. After that, the decision is made that they're going to continue attacking other areas, and that includes Columbia. They, they 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 sail south and they attack several small villages off Columbia. And, you know, we're talking very small villages of kind of 200 people in, in full occupation. And because of that, they're very easily um, attacked and they're burned, plundered. And then the English leave there. And that's really about it. That's all they can achieve there, largely because there's unclear orders as to what they're meant to be doing. Um but also because the fleet had clearly been weakened by this time. So, um, and it does result in large scale arguments. What should we be doing with the fleet? Benjamin Blake, the Gloucester's captain, he strongly believes that the Navy should be used for more offensive actions. He wants to go off and attack Columbia, blockade Havana, pretty much attack wherever, wherever, wherever they can um, in order to secure kind of more English holdings um, at, at the at the loss for the Spanish, of course. But William Goodson isn't so supportive of that. He wants to stay on the island, defend Jamaica, uh, and essentially not really use the Navy in in an offensive manner. And it results in the two kind of being at heads with one another. Yeah, that's a that's a big problem if you don't have a clear mission, because I'm I'm sort of sat here thinking, okay, this is all very 
these beautiful parts of the world very very lovely but what's the end game are we are we do we want is it land is it just to get one over on the spanish i suspect a little bit of both is there anything there that we can that we can trade is you know, and then to just sort of randomly go off on into south america and start is it just to see what's there i mean because i'm guessing this is a certain amount of still exploration of these areas isn't it absolutely i think that's something that should be applauded about the western design generally it might be clearly seen as not going very well in various areas but actually it's really ambitious yet they've never sent a fleet of this size to the caribbean before for some sort of amphibious assault and so in that respect it really is ambitious and unprecedented uh, but you quite rightly say it it hasn't got clear goals right from the start and without those clear clear objectives it's going to result in disorder, which, of course, is what it does, both before Penn and Venables leave the Caribbean and after as well. Yeah. So I'm thinking about I'm now thinking about all the all the men who are you know, essentially floating around, not really knowing what what they're there for and, and what they're doing. Um, I'm guessing disease and death must have been a, a huge factor in the, the failure of this as a design. If you can't keep your men well fighting and alive it's got to be a bit of an issue yeah absolutely i think that's another thing that again they're unprepared for they don't really know what to expect in the caribbean uh when you've got this huge amount of people in you know very small claustrophobic um areas with which really wooden ships were um disease is quite easy to spread especially in a tropical environment where of course there's there that it's it's going to spread far easier and um not only is disease spreading in hispanola it spreads across the army and actually that results in a conflict really between the army and the navy because while the army's often hispanola dying the kind of navy is of course sitting off on shore just watching it and the army regularly is kind of asking the navy for kind of more resources which the navy is reluctant to provide and it does and it results in a sort of conflict and the navy start calling the soldiers cowards for not doing enough and the army in in turn refers to the navy as essentially um abandoning them and not doing enough and so these two bodies aren't clearly happy with one another and there is considerable unrest as a result of it and that continues when they get to jamaica because although of course Penn and Venables and many others return home. Many of us still stay there. And uh, the army on the island, it's been recorded very well in history prior to, prior to my research that uh, disease really does spread and people are dropping constantly on, on, on the island. Uh, we think of a disease, it's probably yellow fever. Mm-hmm. And uh, they're, they're dropping in huge numbers. But actually, when we look into research into these warships and south, particularly in the Gloucester, we realise that that disease isn't only spreading the army, it's also spreading the Navy as well. They're not able to isolate that, that spreading disease. And we do have, quite sadly, a, a number of wills of the Gloucester's crew um, of individuals who are sitting on their deathbeds. They know they've got this disease and they're about to die and they're bequeathing what little goods they have to their loved ones or in, if, they, if they don't have them to, to, um, to their crewmates. Um, and so we do know of, of, of many different individuals who are dying of this disease on board. So, of course, one would presume when when you're off in these offensive actions that you're going to die from um, 
from assaults from from warfare but actually the biggest killer here is tropical diseases and the inability of the the Cromwellian kind of navy at the time to understand and to be able to prevent them Uh, so it's really quite a sad story and of course that disease also results in disorder people aren't happy when they're seeing all their friends dropping dead and so they're disgruntled and that then leads later on to a larger disagreement that happens in what something is could potentially be in a mutiny gosh this is i mean i i hadn't appreciated this but of course when you've got um a force made up of the army and the navy they're not they're not one unit they're not one sort of homogenous body they're two very separate organizations with two different structures and they they are that they're they're treated differently and they're in very different places how how did these people feel you they like you say they're they're dying they're seeing their they're seeing their comrades dying around them they've got the rivalry with the the guys on the boat or the guys on the shore and they don't really know what they're there for how did they feel about this their mission or lack of it well i imagine they were really rather aggravated and frustrated throughout not only are they seeing these individuals just dropping dead all the time but they're probably sitting there rather bored throughout in this that and this is kind of part of the argument if good we go with goodson's idea with the the navy is for defense and so it should be sitting on uh, around the island they are just going to be sitting around as a result with very little to do they haven't got their families with them and and so they can of course idleness fosters unrest Uh, and and that's really quite evident from the from the records as well that 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 that, that, that's what happens um there is so much resistance the problem is as well that when you're away in the caribbean you are perhaps two months away from any direct correspondence yeah. with, with those back at home. And so you can't get these clear content orders and instructions on what you should be doing. And so it's really left to you in this completely isolated environment to decide what to do. And so it's not surprising that there is all this unrest and uh, lack of unity over, over, when, when, over what's happening there. Let's talk about the man in charge. Let's talk about Benjamin Blake. What what's he like? What kind of a what kind of a man? What kind of a captain is he? So he is a particularly intriguing individual in history. I, I must say, largely because of not only who he is, but what family he's from. He is the younger brother of General C. Robert Blake, who really is kind of the Nelson of the 17th century. Uh, he's the individual who's winning all these battles during the First Anglo-Dutch War for, for the Commonwealth. And um, you have got the the Robert Blake's younger brother serving as the Gloucester's very first captain. So that's quite intriguing and, and uh, important, I think, in this. And it, I think that's that also reflects the kind of person who, who he is. He, his big brother is the man in charge. So he feels both entitled and also like he can get away with a lot of things, I must add. Okay. Um, he, he's previously got experience in the Caribbean. He's certainly been there before in the 1640s, it appears, for, um, probably from the kind of um, as a trader and also as a soldier. Uh, 
but he's also got experience in the Navy as a captain during the first Anglo-Dutch War. Um, he, in fact, he captained one of his brother's ships. So he is a well-developing captain commander in the Navy, although he's certainly not the big Navy at the top. Um, but it, he, he is a significant individual nonetheless. And um, there's an interesting point that happens at the Battle of Dungeness during the First Anglo-Dutch War, uh, which is usually seen as an English failure. And uh, the, the English lose, and his ship that he's leading is assaulted many times by the Dutch. And after the battle, he loses his command. He's essentially sacked from office. And it's a little unclear as to exactly why this happens, but it seems that he was open. There was a council of war before the battle and he was willing openly to argue and disagree with his superiors on what the fleet should be doing. So he was a very uh, loudmouth and outspoken individual. And that also comes across in the Caribbean. Again, perhaps he's out so outspoken because he's got his brother brother's back in it would appear. So he so he's removed from command after the Battle of Dungeness, and it's not until the Gloucester that he's he's uh, he's reappointed to a, to a position as a captain. Um, so he's an interesting individual for that reason. And uh, when it comes to the Caribbean, he eventually in Jamaica, when we've got all this unrest, disease spreading, when there's these clear arguments over what the navy should be used for, he interestingly becomes the head of the resistance against Goodson's own beliefs that the Navy should be just be used for defence. He wants the Navy to be used for offence. He wants to be off attacking Colombia for, you know, glory, for the glory of the country and all. And um, perhaps he's also doing it for his men. He sees them bored and idle there, dying. Perhaps going off and having a clear goal is a way to kind of increase motivation and work ethic. Um and it results in, on a number of occasions between late 1655 and 1656, in him writing these kind of documents to Goodson, telling him that he's doing things wrong, that he is not using the Navy correctly and that people are just dying there. And it results in clear friction between the two. And it, at the end of this, in June 1656, he writes another paper to Goodson, having just returned from Columbia again on the Gloucester. And we have, unfortunately, we haven't got the actual information stating exactly what, with the actual information exactly what this paper said, but it clearly was, um, it clearly had mutinous kind of connotations connected to it. Um, because immediately upon do, um, receiving this petition, the, the petition, this paper, um, Goodson denounces Blake and says it's treasonous what he's wrote on uh, on this paper and um, it actually ends in Blake being essentially sacked dishonourably from post a, a, a messenger comes on board the Gloucester with a piece of paper uh, informing Blake that he's asked, he has to remove his flag as vice admiral of the ship and that he has to return home from England to England so um, oh. what Blake did clearly 
didn't please Goodson. And we do have some ideas about what actually he did say. Clearly, it was connected to the fact that he didn't believe the Navy was being used correctly. But it must also have been connected to the fact that many other individuals in the fleet must have agreed with Blake. Goodson openly admitted that Blake was having these dinners and these meetings with last factions of other officers in the fleet who were in support of Blake and who he believed Blake was turning against Goodson. So really, it did have the potential to result in a large-scale mutiny in which Goodson was removed and his voice admiral could have been placed ahead of him. But Goodson was clever enough to see it coming and he removes him from post before that was possible. Goodness. It sounds like Blake's got, you know, he's, he's got the real sort of need to prove himself and uh, and and wanting to wanting to push forward and very much wanting to maybe outdo his brother in, in bravery and in achievement. Um, but, yeah, this this is not happening for him. Now he's sent home. So what happens to the Gloucester after this what happens after the summer in 1656 when when the the captain's been sent away <laughs> so benjamin blake returns home in a different vessel the vessel called the great charity the gloucester stays in the caribbean and it's given a new captain captain richard newbury who clearly seems to be more kind of inclined to agree with william goodson's own views so he's one of goodson's men probably and um the Gloucester remains there. It, it it takes part in a kind of a blockade of Havana with no real clear results, but it really doesn't do achieve anything of significance. And after Blake returns home, uh, a month later, the Gloucester itself is also ordered to go to head back home. It's it, Goodson looks at the Gloucester and he considers the ship is actually being a really poor order. It, it needs repairs doing to it. So it, it heads home to to England as well, and, it, and Gloucester reaches English waters in October 1656. So it d- doesn't stay there for long thereafter. But the ship is, uh, after it returns to England, it, and uh, after it receives some repairs, it does continue to be used quite heavily by the common by the Commonwealth um, uh, in this newly developed Spanish war that England have clearly begun by with this. <laughs> And design. Uh, Gloucester sails off of the Iberian coastline, takes part in various kind of minor skirmishes there. Um, it, it is a heavily used warship for the rest of the, the rest of the Commonwealth regime. Amazing. So it, it's it always feels a little bit a little bit of a strange thing to say because obviously we know that empire wasn't a good thing for for people, and it, it's not it, it's not sort of ever to be seen necessarily as a huge success. But would it be fair to call the Western design a Cromwellian favour? Because all I'm seeing out of this is, do we do we keep hold of Jamaica? Because we've got that and we've managed to start a war with the Spanish. So I'm, I'm not seeing a huge, a huge success here. Well, it's often described by historians as almost like, um, the most successful failure in history. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't achieve its grand objectives. Um, it didn't have any grand objectives. It, it didn't have any exactly. It was really quite unclear what it was really designed to do. Except from we're going to we're going to aggravate the Spanish in the yeah. area. That, that seemed to be what their idea was, and hopefully to expand the strength and the Commonwealth as a result. Yeah. Except from that, it really was quite unclear. It would seem. Um, yeah, so really it was a successful failure. And what I mean by that is Jamaica was perceived at the time as a consolation prize. It, it At home, 
this was seen as a a big defeat as a loss in fact they they attempted to spin it with propaganda there was claims that uh, upon arriving in the caribbean the english fleet immediately captured great a great ship of spanish ship full of gold and everything was marvelous <laughs> from the start of course that was a complete lie and never happened and uh jamaica really is the only kind of selling point for for them here um so and even that, as I say, it's a consolation prize, and therefore it's seen as a, a successful failure. And what we really mean with that is, you know, Jamaica at the time wasn't used very much with the Spanish, but of course later Jamaica becomes absolutely essential to the development of the British Empire um, and and to trade in the area. Of course, that has you know hugely negative connotations of what happens as a result with empire, but um, for the idea of British expansion and strengthening. Jamaica's really important for British history, for, for um, empire building. Um, so it is a successful failure in that respect. Although certainly at the time uh, for Cromwell, I don't think it was perceived that way. And often the Western design is looked at as being almost the beginning of the end for the Cromwellian regime. Before that, it was almost perceived to be unstoppable, as, as invincible. It was winning everything. It, it beat the king. Um, it had a, a large scale permanent army and navy. It beat the Dutch. What couldn't it do? And and it turns out what it couldn't do is actually this huge ambitious scheme to to travel across the Atlantic and have a a, a, a large naval force to sustain itself there um, in strength. Clearly, it was unsuccessful in that. And I think the Cromwellian regime perhaps had a reality check thereafter. Thanks. They they thought that they were smiled on by God and that every every sort of every enterprise they went into would be successful because that was what god wanted and that's a slight like you say bit of a reality check that perhaps um you're not so blessed as you think i think so yeah absolutely there's this clear disorder and anarchy in the commonwealth that that is often cover up through through things like religion there's no clear religious policy at at this time it's almost it seems like a free fall as long as you're not catholic (laughs) (laughs) and of course it's the catholics who seem to perhaps win with in the western design by rebuffing the the english efforts in hispanola so yes it it, it's not all sunshine and roses i i think at this time well thank you so much for coming and telling us all about it today ben it's so exciting watching your research and knowing that there's probably so many more secrets yet to be revealed in that shipwreck and we we may learn a lot more very soon absolutely we're so lucky and privileged with the gloucester and that it is such an important warship to both national and global history amazing where can we follow your discoveries and your adventures so we have a website uh www.gloucestershipwreck.co.uk which you can find out all about the research we're doing at UEA with my colleague Professor Claire Jarrett on this on this project um, and also I've, I've got a new kind of article out on this very topic of the Gloucester and the Western Design and it's been published in the Historical Journal and it's freely available online so please do take a look at that. Wonderful we will share a link to that thank you Dr Benjamin Redding thank you for joining me today. Thank you. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books, you can support them, and you can support us on History Hack. 
10% of every sale via our bookshop, supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.